slavery. Because of the potential sensitivity of this subject, Pastor asked me if I'd be willing to share my reaction to his sermon with you. I enthusiastically said yes. In fact, Pastor not only shared his sermon with me, he shared it with another member of our church and two seminary presidents just to make sure he was handling the subject accurately and sensitively. If you're anything like me, you love the fact that our church is so multi-ethnic. To me, it makes a powerful statement that our common bond as believers in Jesus Christ supersedes any racial, cultural, political, or economic differences we might have. And our love for each other, despite our many differences, is a powerful witness to an unsaved world. Frankly, I think Pastor does a great job leading Crosspoint with great cultural awareness and sensitivity. I recall on two separate occasions, he has led the church to get on our knees to pray for President Obama and President Trump during a church service. That's because we are charged as believers to pray for our government leaders, not because pastor supports either political party. Pastor supports the Bible and what it instructs us to do. In fact, I believe the pastor is apolitical and all biblical. My life verse is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which states that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I invite you to join me with an open heart and attentive ears as pastor preaches through this important text and we learn what God has to say about this topic and how we might once again conform our hearts and our actions to the model of Jesus Christ. So pastor, would you please come forward and allow me the privilege of praying for you? And can we give him a word of encouraging applause? Love you, brother. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace and power and truth and mercy, and I bring before you our beloved brother, Pastor. You know I love him dearly, Lord. And I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will equip him to boldly preach the word of God today. I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our hearts would be attentive and we'd hear what you have to say to us. I thank you for Pastor's courage to boldly preach the entire counsel of God and that we as members of Cross Point Church benefit by hearing his preaching every Sunday. I love this brother. I pray that we would affirm him with all of our attention. And may your name be lifted on high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can tell, this is not going to be your typical message. So I want to begin by welcoming those at our Mill Creek campus, those who are watching online by television, those here at our Sugarloaf campus, uh, thank you for joining us today. We spend the majority of our lives doing it. As children, we begin to think about how we're going to do it. We spend the first 25% of our lives getting ready to do it, and yet 
85% of us hate doing it. 69% of Americans quit doing it by the time they're 66 years of age. So what am I talking about? Talking about work. Talking about work. So it is a huge part of your life, whether you like your job or not. And as I just said, 85% of us say we don't like what we do. And yet it is a part of who we are. If you meet a stranger, you're eventually going to ask, well, what do you do? If we ask little children, what do you want to be when you grow up? If you meet a college student, you'll ask, what are you majoring in? If you meet someone who's retired, you'll inevitably ask, so what did you do for a living? Now, the interesting thing is, work was not a human invention. It was actually God's idea from the very beginning. You know, the very first command God ever gave a human being, it was to work. Adam and Eve had barely taken their first breath when God said to them, your job is to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, you are to rule over it and to make it productive. As a matter of fact, the very first time the word work is ever used in the Bible, it's at the very beginning of the biblical story. Here's what we read. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the truth of the matter is, everybody in this life who is physically able is expected to work, not only by, by, by society, but, but the God that put us here. He expects us to work. Even the Son of God had a work that God gave him to do. In fact, at the end of his life, here's what Jesus said. I brought you glory on earth. How did he do that? By finishing the work you gave me to do. If you're a guest of ours today, we're in a book called Ephesians. We've been doing a series we've been calling Unbelievable, and today we're going to look at one of the major passages in all of the Bible about work. Now, just to kind of set this up, uh, those of us who work know this, work is divided up always into two areas. You have labor, you have management. You have the employer, you have the employee. And in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Paul uses an economic situation that was prevalent in his day to illustrate and to educate how should management treat labor? How should a boss treat an employee? How should an employee relate to the boss? And how God is watching how each always treats the other. Now, here's where we're going to get into this difficult subject. Because the analogy that Paul uses to illustrate the truth about work is shocking, it's uncomfortable, it's made a lot of people angry. It's one of the reasons why there are certain people who've just kind of taken the Bible, thrown it into the trash can and said, I don't like that book, if this is what it teaches, I don't wanna have anything to do with it whatsoever. And by the way, to be honest, pastors conveniently skip over passages like this. And to be very honest with you, when we planned out our preaching series about a year ago, I skipped this passage. As I was reading through Ephesians, I said, no, I don't believe I'm going to preach that. And then I got convicted because I want to make something very plain. I, I'm not ashamed of anything that's found between the covers of this book. I don't understand all of it. Yes, there are parts of it I don't like. Yes, there are parts of it I kind of wish was not in there. Uh, 
But at the same time, I'm not afraid to teach what I believe to be the properly interpreted truth of this book. I believe all of the book is inspired, and I believe that it is all God's truth to us. See, here's why I love the Bible so much. The Bible really is unlike any other book that ever has been written or ever will be written, and I say that for three reasons. First of all, it is a heavenly book. It's a heavenly book. It was Men wrote it, but the, but the Bible says about itself, God inspired men to write this book. So in other words, this is the word of God to us. It's not our word about God. It is a heavenly book. Number two, it is a holy book. That is, it con con contains divine instructions on how we're to live that will please God, bless others, and live the life that God wants us to live. Now, you know that, but here's the other thing we have to own up to and freely admit. It is a human book. It's a human book. It doesn't skirt issues. It paints the picture of humanity, warts and all. It talks about people who are godly, people who are not godly. It talks about people who did the right thing. It talks about people who did the wrong thing. As a matter of fact, you only find perfection two times in the Bible. You find it in the first two chapters of the Bible. You find it in the last two chapters in the Bible. In between, you find the same world we live in today, a world where on the one hand, we believe that God is in control, and yet a world on the other hand where we wonder, where is God? With all of the evil and all of the dying and all of the suffering and all of the sin and all of the wickedness. So let's take a deep breath and listen to the words that Paul wrote that apply to work. And as we do, please do it. And I really mean this. Even as you're listening, pray for me because this is a very, very sensitive topic. And pray that I will take on this topic that really does call for clear teaching. And by the way, if you brought your notebook, your little discipleship notebook, the passage is on page uh, 36, or you can look on in your iPad or your Bible, or you can look on the screen. Here's the passage we're going to study. Paul said, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Now, I want to say something at the very outset and get a couple of elephants out of the room. In case you haven't noticed, I'm a white guy. So just get that out. I get it. I understand. And I also realize that those two words, slaves and masters, are heard completely differently by an African-American than they are by a white person. I get it. As a matter of fact, when you add in the word obedience, slave obey your masters, that terminology becomes even more supercharged. And it kind of brings up some very bad memories. And I understand that white people will not necessarily struggle with those words as much perhaps, and certainly not the same way as black people will. I get that. That's not a matter of political correctness. That is a matter of emotional reality. And I want you to know, and I hope you see this. I spent days, I've spent weeks, 
I've been thinking about this message really for probably about two months. I poured over books. I poured over this book. I probably studied more for this sermon than any other sermon I've ever delivered in my life. But this is my prayer this morning, that you will not be discouraged, you will be encouraged as I put all of the teaching of God's Word into context. Now, before we get into kind of plunge into this subject, where I know some of you are already a little bit uncomfortable, and some of you are wondering, why did you just skip this? Why did you even bring this up? I want you to keep one thing in mind. As a matter of fact, if you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to know what I'm about to say. This is the most important statement I'm going to make. Slavery in any form is wrong. It is a horrific evil, not just an evil. It is a horrific evil, but it is in the Bible. But as you study the Bible and you put it in context, the story that you think the Bible talks about is not the story that it talks about. And I need you to keep three words in mind as we put slavery in its rightful biblical, social, and cultural context of that day, all right? Here's the words to keep in mind. Keep in mind the word celebrate. Keep in mind the word regulate. And keep in mind the word eliminate, all right? I'm gonna make three statements. Number one, the scripture never celebrates slavery. Scripture never celebrates slavery. So simply put, there is no scriptural basis for racism or the type of slavery that was practiced in this country 150 years ago. And oh, by the way, it's still practiced in some places around the world today. When you read the Bible from beginning to end, and I've done it many, many times, the scripture never condoned slavery anytime, anywhere. Now to be sure, to the shame of the church, yes, there were some pastors and there were some so-called Christian leaders and Christians who tried to defend slavery from a biblical basis. Simply put, they were just plain wrong. They would pick, they would cherry pick, they would choose, they would take verses out of context, and they would do everything they could to make it right, but it wasn't right. Because the truth of the matter is, the scripture never, ever, ever condones slavery. They were just wrong. As a matter of fact, not only the teaching of Jesus, but the very first chapter of scripture, which tells us we were all created in the image of God, sets the stage what the Bible really teach about slavery. Now, let me just get this out as well. There are a lot of things that are portrayed in the Bible and described in the Bible and permitted in the Bible, but they're not condoned by the Bible. For example, there's polygamy in the Bible. But God never condones polygamy. There's divorce in the Bible, but God never condones divorce. We see slavery in Scripture, but God never condones slavery. But this is where we need to stop right now and contextualize slavery in ancient culture. One of my favorite authors happens to be an African-American. You've probably never heard of him. For a long time, he was with the Hoover Institute. He was a columnist. He's just a brilliant, brilliant man. Every time he writes a book, I read it. His name is Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L. Dr. Sowell said that every major world culture until the modern day period, without exception, has had 
slavery. In other words, for thousands of years, the type of slavery we're gonna talk about in a moment was just an accepted way of life. It was a way of doing business. When Paul wrote these words, when Paul said, slave, obey your master. When he said, master, treat your slave the way he ought to be treated. When Paul wrote those words, Slavery was universal in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, in the ancient Roman Empire, it's been computed, there were 60 million slaves. In the city of Rome, 85 to 90% of the population consisted of slaves. So go back 2,000 years ago. You live in the city of Rome. You're walking down the street. Eight or nine out of every 10 people you would have met would have been a slave. It was ubiquitous. It was universal. You say, well, I don't understand. Let me just now explain. Slavery usually served an economic function. Back in the day, you didn't have bankruptcy laws. So if you borrowed money from someone and you went into debt you would, and you couldn't repay it, you would voluntarily sell yourself and maybe your entire family into slavery as a way to discharge that debt. It was an economic arrangement. As a matter of fact, to many families, it meant their literal survival. Because if I borrowed, let's say I was a sharecropper and I borrowed money against my crop, but it didn't rain and the crop didn't come in. Now I owe you this great sum of money and there's no way I can pay it back. I would go to you and I would say, would you let me work off this debt? Would you let me become your quote unquote slave or your indentured servant? And here's the way it would work. He would say, yes, the master would say, yes, but he would say, by the way, bring your wife, bring your children. I will provide them a place to stay and a place to sleep. You'll get three meals a day. I will put clothes on your back. And when you work off the debt, you will go free. And this is, the mo this is so important to understand. When we think about slavery, we automatically project antebellum slavery. But the truth of the matter is, slavery in biblical times, either the Old Testament or the New Testament, listen, had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. Now, again, I'm not trying to romanticize slavery. I'm not trying to justify slavery. Yes, there were many situations where slaves were abused and slaves were misused, but we cannot project our cultural understanding of slavery 2,000 years ago in an unfiltered past. So let me give you an example. Let's take Old Testament slavery. Go back to the Old Testament and read it. There were some major differences between Old Testament slavery and what we think of as slavery. Because I've already pointed out that back in biblical days, slavery was not connected to race or color at all. Here's a good example. Hagar was an Egyptian slave to a Hebrew family. Joseph was a Hebrew slave to an Egyptian family. Furthermore, it was common for people to sell themselves into slavery, not only to pay off a debt, sometimes people, because they couldn't find work and they couldn't find a job, basically would go to someone and say, look, I need help. Let me indenture myself to you. Let me sign a contract. Let me put myself in your, in, into your, uh, your, your mastery. So it would be a form of employment. It'd be a way that you could keep your family alive. But even then, the vast majority of slaves, once they worked off the debt that they owed or they could find more meaningful job, they would buy their way into slavery. That was the Old Testament. 
Then you go to the New Testament, you go to the Roman Empire. There were many similarities between a slave and a free person. For example, if you met somebody coming down the street, you couldn't tell by the color of their skin, you couldn't tell by the clothes that they wear, you couldn't tell by the language that they spoke, you didn't know if they were slave or free. There was no difference in race, speech, or clothing. Slaves made the same wage that a free laborer doing the same job could make, and they could always buy themselves out of slavery. Matter of fact, this blew my mind. Few, very few slaves in, in New Testament days were slaves for life. As a matter of fact, listen to this, this blew me away. Most slaves in the New Testament were set free or earned their freedom within 10 to 15 years. Slaves could even own other slaves. Get this, slaves could even own other slaves who were indebted to them. Slaves could start a business. Slaves could own property. They all enjoyed the same right to public education that free people did. When you met a slave, that slave might also be a doctor. He might also be an educator. He might also be a professor. Believe it or not, he might also work for the Roman government as a civil servant. Now again, I'm not justifying slavery and neither is scripture. I just need you to understand that the slavery described in the Old of the New Testament was not racially based. It was by and large an accepted part of the socioeconomic culture of that day. So understand the scripture never celebrates slavery. But let me tell you what it does do. The scripture does regulate slavery. Now, this is, again, this is so life-changing. It's so mind-altering. There were laws and regulations that governed slavery in the Old Testament that were revolutionary. They were unheard of. For example, if you know your Old Testament, you know about the year of Jubilee. If you don't, I'll tell it to you. Israel had a law. Every seventh year was the year of Jubilee. There were a lot of great things about the year of Jubilee, but this was one thing that everybody loved, whether you were slave or free. If you were a slave in Jewish culture, in Jewish religion, the year of Jubilee, every slave was set free. Even if you hadn't paid your debt off, you were set free. Even if you still owed money, you were set free. Every indentured slave had to be set free. If a master killed his slave, he had to forfeit his own life. If a master inflicted bodily injury on a slave, even if he just knocked out a tooth, the slave had to be automatically freed. If you were a slave, it didn't matter whether you were Jewish or you were a foreigner. You got a day of rest just like everybody else. You went to the temple just like everybody else. You were considered a part of the life of the nation just like everybody else. And more importantly, the kind of slavery that we think of, don't you hear this? Many of you don't know this. The kind of slavery that we think about that we practice in this country, where people were kidnapped from their homes, people were taken away from their families, brought on a ship over here so they could be slaves in this country, taking them away from family. In the Bible, listen to this, that was a capital offense in the Old Testament. So I didn't know that. Listen to this verse. Whoever steals a man and sells him, that is, you took him to be your slave, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, in Old Testament days, if I stole you 
from your family and I forcibly took you away from your family and I sold you to somebody else, not only was I put to death, but the person that bought you was put to death. So understand, the recognition in the Old Testament of slaves having legal rights and intrinsic worth as human beings, it was absolutely revolutionary. The outside culture never heard of such an arrangement. They had never heard of such a thing. And you'll see in just a moment, that's even more true in the New Testament. But here's what I want you to hear. This is the, this is, this is the most important part of this section. So everybody has this. Scripture does not celebrate slavery, never. Scripture does regulate slavery. But here's what I want you to hear. The Scripture gives principles to eliminate slavery. Because I know there are some who say, well, well why, why didn't Jesus address slavery? Well, he did. And why did Paul talk about slavery the way he did? Well, he did, but when you read what he said, you say, okay, I get it, because stay with me. The root cause of slavery is sin. The root cause of slavery is sin. It's the sin of greed. It's wanting others to serve your material needs. It is the sin of power. You want to control other people. Discrimination is the symptom of the problem. The problem is sin, which brings racism, which causes discrimination. And it's this feeling that one race is inferior to another race and another race is superior to another race. But I want you to understand, sin is the cause. That's why the Bible is so clear. That's why the Bible is so crystal clear about this because the Bible's main issue it deals with is sin. And that's why I want you to hear this. That is why at the end of the day, the solution for elimination is not just legislation, it is transformation. There are principles in scripture that were sown in the soil of society that eventually led to the abolition movement and the elimination of slavery here in America and around the world. So let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus, did he talk about slavery? Sure he did. He said the second commandment is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he told a parable. So who's your neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. All right, think about that. If you're my neighbor and I am to love you as I love myself, how could I ever put you in chains? How could I ever enslave you? All right, let me just tell you one statement Jesus made that would totally have killed slavery if people had taken it seriously. Do unto others and you'd have them do unto you. There simply is no way you can enslave anyone for any reason and not break the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. And oh, by the way, the apostle Paul, there are people today, you know what they say about Paul? Well, Paul was just wrong. Paul's wrong about slaves. Paul's wrong about women in the church. Paul's wrong about this. Paul was wrong about that. Well, let's just take Paul. Paul specifically denounced the kind of slavery that was practiced in this nation that involved kidnapping, buying, and selling human beings. I, I, I'd forgotten this verse was in the Bible, and I bet many of you have read the Bible many times and thought, I have never noticed that. Listen to what Paul wrote. Paul was, Paul was condemning certain sins. He said, the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. 
Paul condemned the kind of slavery that we all condemn. Paul condemned the kind of slavery that was practiced in this nation and still practiced today. So just take two, just take two doctrines in the Bible. Creation, we're all created in God's image. Salvation, in Christ is neither slave nor free. Just the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of salvation are poison to any type of slavery. That's why it shouldn't surprise us that of all the religious faiths in the world, there's only one belief system and one religious system that historically fostered the idea that slavery was absolutely evil, and that's Christianity. When you go back and you study history, you'll find that slavery was successfully abolished two times, twice. Once in late antiquity and once in the 1800s, both because of Christianity. And there's never been more of an effort in the history of this world to eliminate racism and discrimination than during the civil rights movement, which was led by a Christian preacher who got his ideas right out of the Bible named Martin Luther King. So keeping in mind that slavery in Paul's days was mainly a socioeconomic work arrangement, had nothing to do with race, had nothing to do with the color of anyone's skin. Keeping that in mind, now we can apply what Paul said to our work today. Because remember this, when you read this passage, Paul wasn't really giving a social commentary on slavery. That, that was not even the point of what he was doing. Here's what he was saying. You know, in this society, we've got this economic, socioeconomic arrangement we call slavery. And, and even, though it, it, even though any type of slavery is wrong, Paul said, knowing this, these are the facts on the ground, we can see how this work, labor, this management, labor, boss, employee, slave, master relationship, we can take this analogy and we can show, give divine principles that we can apply anywhere where you've got management, you've got labor, you've got bosses, you've got employees. And he says, this is how this work arrangement ought to be done. So he says, first of all, I'm gonna talk to the employees then I'm gonna to talk to the employers and then I'm gonna to speak to both. Now, we're all one or the other, right? You are either an employee or you are an employer, okay? You may boss other people or maybe somebody bosses you. The question is, okay, so what does the word of God have to say about how we ought to conduct ourselves in the workplace? First of all, here's what he says to the employee. He says to the employee, you are to respond in a godly way. In your work, to your boss, to your employer, you are to respond in a godly way. Now keep something in mind. I am not comparing a working person to a slave. I'm not doing that. You may feel like one, that's not what I'm, that's what I'm doing. That's not what I'm comparing it to. But there are principles that can be taken from the economic relationship between a slave and a master, we've already explained, that do apply to the employee-employee relationship. And let me tell you why. One thing doesn't change in the world, nothing. You know when Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun? He was right. You know the problems we've got today? Can I, can I let you on a secret? They had them 5,000 years ago. Anybody here having to put up, don't raise your hand, have to put up with rebellious kids? God started out with two. There's nothing new under the sun. 
You show me any problem we're leaving with today, they dealt with it last year, last century, last decade, last millennium. They've dealt with it forever and ever and ever. So you know what? We've got the same problem they have today. Today they had years ago. We got mean bosses. We got lazy employees. You've got on the one hand labor unions because employees don't think they get a fair shake. On the other hand, you get lockouts because management doesn't feel that they're getting what they deserve from the employees. So Paul says, okay, let's just, let's just see how we can work together. So speaking first to the employee, here's what Paul says. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now remember who Paul is talking to. He is talking specifically to Christians. Now you say, well, pastor, why would Paul even bring this up? Why is Paul so concerned about work? Well, let me just think about this. See if this doesn't make sense. If you really believe that Christianity works, and I do because I've tried it for 57 years. If you really believe Christianity works, it ought to work at work. Does that make sense? I mean, if Christianity really works, it ought to work at work. Because if it doesn't work at work, where else is it going to work? Well, it does work and it should work because here's what Paul says. At the end of the day, God is working in you and you are working for him. So put simply, Paul says, your work and how you do it is an act of worship to God because you really are working for him. You see, wherever Christians go, whatever Christians do, they're going and they're doing it under the authority and for the glory of God. So Paul sums it up when he says this. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, those words, that, that word with sincerity, it, it literally means liberally. It means generously. And here's what Paul was saying. Whether you're at a checkout counter and you're just serving hamburgers and fries, or you're a fifth grade school teacher in a public school, or you drive a transfer trailer all across the country, or you dig ditches with a shovel, Paul said it doesn't matter. God expects you to give your employer the same thing you give him. Give him your very best effort all the time. In other words, here's what Paul was saying. If you're a follower of Jesus, you may not be the best paid employee in your company, but you should be the best employee in your company. If there's one person that any employer should say, I don't have to worry about their punching the clock. I don't have to worry about what they're doing when I'm not watching. I don't have to worry about whether or not they're getting their job done. It ought to be anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. So Paul says, respond in a godly way. And then Paul moves from the sales floor on the bottom to the office on the top. He says, okay, now let's talk to the boss. Let's talk to the employer. You want your employee to respond in a 
godly way, then you relate in a gracious way. You, you relate in a gracious way. So now he turns to the masters. And by the way, go back 2,000 years. You're, you're a master. You own a slave. You come to Christ. You get a copy of this book. You're reading down the line, and boy, he's talking about slaves obeying your masters. And Paul said, that's right, Paul. Give it to them, baby. Let them have it. And then he reads this. Jaws would have hit the floor. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't miss that. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. That first sentence, masters, treat your slaves in the same way, was a blockbuster. It would have been mind-boggling. Slaves would have been going, did you hear that? Did you read that? He, he's talking to the master. Because 2,000 years ago, no master really gave any thought on how he treated his slave. All the master thought and cared about was how the slave served him, what the slave gave to him. And then Paul comes along and says, hey, master, you treat him with the same respect, the same courtesy, the same dignity that you expect from them. You treat them exactly the same way you want to be treated. And then Paul drops the bomb because you have a master too. You are a slave too. You have someone who is over you too. And he shows no favorites. To him, the master's not above the slave and the slave is not beneath the master. They really are both equal. There's no favoritism with your master. Why? Because all men are created equal. You will be held accountable as to how you supervise your servant. Now, again, this was revolutionary. <clears throat> Go back to any ancient culture. You won't find any regulation of slavery. You won't find anything akin to this whatsoever. No master ever gave any thought as to how he was treated a slave. No master ever thought that he had to answer to another master. So today, think about this. What if everyone that went to work tomorrow, whatever the company, what if everybody went to work tomorrow and realized, wait a minute, I don't work for IBM. I don't work for Amazon. I don't work for Delta. I don't work for Peachtree High School, Peachtree Ridge High School. I don't work for the state of Georgia. I don't work for this law firm. I work for God. He's my ultimate boss. What if every employee tomorrow went in with that kind of attitude? And oh, by the way, what if every boss, what if every employee went into work tomorrow and said, I've got a boss. I've got an employer. I've got a CEO. I've got a president. And I'm going to answer to that president for how I treat my people. The workplace would be radically, totally different. And then Paul has a closing word for both the master and the slave, both the employer and the employee. And here's what he says. He says to the employee today, hey, if you'll work the way you ought to work. And he says to the boss today, hey, if you'll supervise the way you ought to supervise, God's got a word for both of you. And here's what he says. 
He says he will reward in a generous way. He'll reward in a generous way. Listen to verse eight. Because you know, and he's talking to the master, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, here's the point to remember, and hopefully this will help you. Some of you are sitting there right now and you're saying, man, you know, pastor, that's real easy for you to say and it's real easy for you to stand up there and pontificate to me. You don't have to work for the jerk I work for. You don't have to work for the moron that I work for. You gotta put up with a person that I have to put up with. No, I don't. And I grant, maybe you do serve a mean, unfair boss, but here's what God says. I don't care how he or she treats you. If you'll do your job to the best of your ability as an act of worship, if you remember you're not primarily there to earn a paycheck, you're there to glorify me. I will reward you. And you're a boss, and you say, yeah, <laughs> pastor, you don't have to supervise some of the nut jobs I have to supervise. Lazy, come in late, always want to raise. God says, if you'll be gracious, only you're not going to put up with lazy. That's not the point. But if you'll be gracious in the way that you lead your people, if you'll be kind, if you'll be loving, if you'll treat them the way you would like for them to treat you, God will reward you too. So whether you supervise or you serve, whether you're the employer or the employee, we all work under the authority of Jesus. We all serve in our job for Jesus. We all supervise our workers for Jesus. And that's why this is so very important for you to hear today. There is no separation between the sacred and the secular. We think that. So let me just make this real plain. I get up here and I preach and you look at me and you say, man, you are a man of God and you have a holy calling on your life, and I know what, it, what you're doing right now is, I mean, I just can't think of anything more holy than what you're doing right now. Hear me clearly. What I'm doing right now is no more holy than what you're gonna do in the morning. What I'm doing right now is no more important to God than what you're going to do tomorrow. I am no more holy when I sit in this pool pre preaching this book, then you are repairing a computer, making a sales call, or teaching a first grader. All of it is holy. All of it is important. Monday is just as holy a day as Sunday. And at the end of your life, all that will matter, listen, at the end of your life, all that will really matter is not what your employer thought about you. At the end of the day, what will really matter is not what you thought about your employer. All that will matter is what God thought about you and what God thought about both of you. So let me just wrap this up. There's a classic painting. You may have seen it. I've seen it a couple of times. It was called The Angelus. It was painted by a French painter, Jean-Francois Millet. We're gonna put it up here on the screen. If you look closely, it's a painting of two peasants and they're praying in their field. Now, if you look in the background to the right, there's a church steeple. You see the church steeple in the background. There's a church steeple. And, and there's this light that's falling from heaven. But here's what's interesting. Watch this closely. 
The light is not falling on the church. The light's shining on the wheelbarrow. And the light is shining on the pitchfork. Because here's what this author was saying. It doesn't matter whether it's Sunday or Monday. It doesn't matter whether you're in the church or the office. God is always watching the work that we do. Jesus had a work he had to do. It was to provide for us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He finished his work and he gave everything he had. And in that spirit, whether you're management or labor, whether you're employer or employee, your work ethic ought to be the same. Because when Jesus looked at his father and he said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. He finished that work so we would finish our work. And by the way, we all have the same job. Really? Yeah, all of us. What is it? Whether it's preaching or teaching or it's digging ditches or teaching first graders or driving a truck or taking blood. Doesn't matter what it is. We're here to do it for the glory of the master that we all should serve every single day. Let's pray together. I want to ask you a question. And it may sound like a racially charged question, and I don't want it to, but let me ask you this question. Who is your master? Everybody has a master. Who or what is your master? You know, what's interesting? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus talked about our relationship to God using a slave-master analogy? You do remember that the disciples called Jesus master? Let me give you a revolutionary thought. It's all right to be a slave if you're serving the right master. Is Jesus your master? Have you surrendered your life to him completely and totally, voluntarily, absolutely? You know the work that Jesus did? He came and died on a cross for our sins and God brought him back from the dead. You know why? So we would become his, yes, slaves. And he would become our, yes, master. If you've never ever trusted him as your master, if you've never ever surrendered your life to him, would you do it today? Would you just simply say in your heart something like this, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my master. I want you to take complete control of my life. I surrender everything I am to everything that you are. I believe you died for my sins and that God raised you from the dead. And today, I trust you as my Savior. I take you as my Lord. I accept your forgiveness of my sins. I accept your gift of eternal life. And now, Lord Jesus, help me every day, in every way, the rest of my life, to live as your servant with you as my master. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it just then, I want you to do something right now. When you walked in today, you were given a worship guide. On the bottom of that worship guide, there's a card. It says connection point, connection card. 
What I want you to do right now is take a pen or a pencil. It should be in a chair right in front of you. I want you to sign that card. Give us some contact information. Email address, cell phone number, home address. Then at the bottom of that card, it says, Today I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that prayer with me, check off that box right now. If you checked off the first box, go ahead and check off the second box. I want to be biblically baptized. You know why? Because that's what your master commands you to do. That's the first act of obedience as a Christian, to be biblically baptized. You may say, well, I, I've trusted Jesus. I don't need to check off the first box. But you know what? Some of you, I've talked to you. You've never been biblically baptized. You need to do that. You check off the second box. And then it may be you've been coming here for a while and you'd say, man, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. This is where I'd like to place my life. Then you come. You check off that third box. Then at either one of our campuses, here's what I want you to do. We have a table out in, the, in our lobby. It's called Connection Point. You can't miss it. When you walk out of the service, take your car to that table. Take whatever decision you made, just hand them your car. There'll be people waiting on you. You don't have to say anything to anybody. Just take your car. Give it to them. They'll know what to do. We'll follow up with you later. Now, for the rest of us, two things. Number one, you may know someone that needs to hear this message. You may know someone who said, you know what, I don't read that book because of what it says about slavery. But they don't know the truth. They don't know the scripture. They don't know how to put everything in context. They can go online. By the end of this day, this message will be online. They can go online. They can watch it. But even more importantly than that is this. I say it every week. Who's your one? Who's that one person that you have? They are in slavery. Everybody's in slavery to something, to someone we were put on this earth to be slave to one master, the greatest master of all. His name is Jesus. Who is the one that you would bring? That And here's the interesting thing. When you become a slave of Jesus, that's when you get free. If you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of anything that's in it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for writing a book that shows this world warts and all, but most importantly shows at the end of the day, you can always be trusted to do what's right. We love you for it. In the name of our Lord, amen.